Well, this morning we finish out Mark chapter 12, and this is the conclusion of uh, an ongoing showdown between Jesus and the highest authorities of the Jews. So remember where we are. Uh, Jesus is teaching in the outer court of the temple. Um, It is Passover week, and so the place is filled with visitors. Millions of pilgrims descend upon uh, Jerusalem for this great festival. So far, we have seen uh, representatives from different Jewish factions uh, taking turns trying to stump the Lord Jesus. First, we had uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the Sanhedrin, challenged uh, Jesus' authority. They say, who gave thee this authority to do these things? And do we remember Jesus' answer? It was the same authority as John the Baptist. Next, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians came along and asked whether it was lawful to pay tribute to Caesar. Jesus' answer was, give to Caesar what belongs to him and give to God what belongs to God. And then last week, we saw the Sadducees come with an argument against the resurrection. And Jesus answered them by saying, "Uh, well, you don't know your Bible. You don't know the power of God, and then he proceeds to demonstrate from their own scriptures uh, the resurrection from Exodus 3.6. So uh, Jesus is like this great uh, fighter in the ring, and he uh, knocks out one opponent, and immediately another arises, but he just keeps sending them home packing. And yet for all their uh, persistent attempts to catch Jesus in his words, uh, to stump him theologically, in every case, uh, they end up indicting themselves. So this uh, section in Mark's gospel, chapters 11 to 12, are really intended to expose uh, the falsity, the wickedness, the duplicity, and the hypocrisy of the entire uh, Jerusalem establishment. We know there are still uh, some small pockets of faithfulness here and there. God promised there would always be a faithful remnant, but on the whole, the powers that be are corrupt and unjust. These are the false shepherds in Israel who devour the sheep, Jeremiah 23.1. These are the wicked servants in Jesus' parable of the vineyard who steal God's stuff and murder his servants. And what all of this uh, exposing of sin is building up to is chapter 13. Uh, Jesus, in chapter 13, is going to foretell that within one generation, the temple and its leaders are going to be destroyed. The powers that be will be shaken, the stars will fall from the sky, and the Son of Man shall come with power and glory to bring judgment on the old world on the old world and usher in the new. So that's chapter 13. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Um, but this radical change in the authority structure of the whole cosmos is what these little doctrinal controversies are really about. You see, the Jews recognized that Jerusalem and the temple was the center of the world. They knew the promise of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, which says, The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The Jews also knew the many prophecies that a king would arise from the line of David. And that as it says in Psalm 72, verse 8, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. 
So the Jews were primed from their own scriptures for this universal king to come and reign. But as with the arrival of any uh, new power, any new regime, any new uh, kingdom, it is those who are currently in power who are most threatened by any change to the status quo. And it is that change that Jesus is coming to bring. And yet it is a change that is far more profound than either the populace, the crowds who love Jesus, or the upper classes who hate Jesus recognize. They know change is coming, some of them like it, some of them don't, and yet none of them really know what is about to take place. What just about everyone is blind to is that Jesus is God in the flesh. In Jesus, God himself has come to reign as king. And so uh, in arguing with Jesus in the temple, they are arguing with God about his law and doing so in his house. And this is what makes their opposition to Jesus so ironic and outrageous, right? If if you know that Jesus is God, when you read Mark's gospel, you'll get all the jokes. If you don't, you won't. (laughs) And it's amazing how many people read the gospels and don't get the jokes. Uh, There are a lot of them. So these are the people who claim to speak for and represent God and his word. And yet, Here's the joke, they cannot recognize God when he's staring them in the face, okay? They're saying, but God's word says, uh, so you don't want to ever have that argument with God, right? So um, our text this morning really is the culmination, the conclusion of this public showdown. And there are four sections to this passage, it's a longer text, um, and each has a very important application for us. So I'll give you kind of a, a basic outline of the text. In verses 28 to 34, Jesus tells us what the greatest commandment is. In verses 35 to 37, Jesus tells us who the Messiah is. In verses 38 to 40, Jesus warns us of seeking worldly honor and riches. And then in verses 41 to 44, Jesus gives us the example of the poor widow. So let's walk through our text together. So this first section, what is the greatest commandment according to Jesus? We could put this another way, you know, there's all those laws in the Old Testament, which one is the most weighty, or is there a way of organizing them according to importance? This is the question a scribe poses to Jesus in verse 28, and Jesus responds by saying this. So what's the Old Testament, what's the law about? Jesus says, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So notice that Jesus begins his answer with what is uh, undoubtedly the most famous verse in the Old Testament uh, if you were a Jew, and that is, Deuteronomy 6.4, also known as the Shema, and it was customary for Jews to say this uh, Shema twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And it is really the Old Testament equivalent to our Christian confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if Jesus Christ is Lord is the, the fundamental Christian confession, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is the fundamental Old Testament or Jewish confession. So notice in Jesus' answer here, what is the first verb or action that Jesus commends for us as the greatest commandment? Well, it is hear, hear. 
Yes, love for God and love for neighbor is the substance of the great commandment, but even prior to love is this necessity of hearing. We must hear and know the voice of God and believe that he is one Lord. Right? This is because you cannot love what you do not know. So therefore you must know, you must hear and know the one God and to him alone should all your heart, soul, mind and strength be given. In other words, it is not enough to just be radical in your devotion if the object of your devotion is false. If the object of your devotion is anyone or anything other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, well, then it is what we call idolatry. And so Jesus says, here, take heed to who it is that you are worshiping. Now, um, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that there are many strange laws and regulations, and uh, many of them are hard to understand. And what Jesus is giving us here is really the answer key to understanding all of those laws. Because when you reduce the divine intent behind every law down to its most basic principle, it's simply love God more than anything and love your neighbor as yourself. So you, you think about uh, it, uh, it's not right to uh, muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Remember, this is your hermeneutic. Somehow that's teaching you about loving God and loving your neighbor. And then Paul says what it really means is pay the pastor which you guys do, so good job, thank you, thank you. You're, love, you're loving your neighbor, right? So uh, th- this, is a, this is a helpful check when you're just reading through, a law, through the laws in the Old Testament and you're not sure uh, why it says what it says. Remember, somehow the logic is going to be loving God, loving your neighbor. Uh, God, God cares about animals, but he cares for people a lot more. So anything about animals, it's actually about people, okay? There's, there's your answer key. So uh, uh, the scribes recognize in Jesus' answer uh, that he has spoken well, or this, this one scribe, rather. This one scribe recognizes that Jesus has spoken well. And in a really surprising and refreshing turn of events, after all the aggressive opposition, the scribe agrees with Jesus and adds that this is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What Jesus said, loving God, loving your neighbor, that's worth more than all the, the offerings and sacrifices. So he knows uh, the verse that uh, Les read earlier from 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. So in that uh, text that Les read, Saul uh, is given a command to destroy the Amalekites completely. He thinks, ah, I'm going to save the best of the animals and offer them as a sacrifice to God. You think, Wow, that's a, that's a very thoughtful and pious thing to do, Saul. And yet, uh, that is the thing that um, causes his downfall, right? He presumes that he knows better what God wants than what God you know, says he wants. So to obey is better than sacrifice. God also says in Hosea 6, 6, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. So here Jesus gives us the ultimate end for your existence, right? Why did God create you? What are you here for? What is life all about? What is your purpose? What should occupy your attention? Well, one thing, God. Man's final end is to know and love God. There is simply nothing higher. And therefore, everything else even and especially many other good things 
must be subordinated and ordered towards that end. Now, if knowing and loving God is our highest good, then what is sin? Well, sin is settling for any lesser good than God. That's what sin is. Sin is when your will thinks that something is good, and yet, in the grand scheme of things, it's a lesser good than God would want for you. So God, God loves us, and when he loves you, what is the greatest good that God could will for you? God. God is himself the greatest good that he could will for you. Right? So this is how we order our loves, and this is why sin is always defined in relation to God. To put it in uh, terms that St. Augustine used, uh, sin is to have disordered loves. You love something disproportionately or in the wrong proportions. So we exist to know and love God with all that we are. That is what Jesus is teaching. And to love our neighbor as ourself. And this Jewish scribe agrees with Jesus that this is the first and highest commandment. And yet, oddly, according to Jesus, this is not sufficient for him to enter the kingdom. In verse 34, it says, Jesus saw that he answered discreetly. He said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Right, so he's close, but he's not yet in. So what is this scribe missing? Well, that is what Jesus is going to address with a question of his own. And he poses it uh, really in the form of a riddle. Uh, and he, uh, this is a riddle taken from one of the Psalms. So uh, continuing verses uh, 35 to 37. And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. All right, so that's the riddle. <laughs> and he doesn't actually give you the answer. It's implicit in the question. Uh, so the question really is, who is the Christ? The question Jesus is asking then is, how can the Christ be both David's son and David's Lord. That's the riddle. How can the Christ, so the, the scribes all know uh, there's all these prophecies about the Christ, but how can he be both David's son and David's Lord? If the Christ is David's son and no son is greater than his father, no father calls his son, you know, my Lord, how then can David call his son in Psalm 110, my Lord? Scripture teaches both of these realities about the Messiah. God promised in 2 Samuel 7 that David's throne would endure forever. And even after the kingdom was divided, the Jews were in exile, God promised again in Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Jeremiah 23, 5. So whoever the Christ is, he must be a fleshly descendant of David. And yet David, inspired by the Holy Ghost, says in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So either David is an idolater, calling someone else my Lord, then the Lord, or somehow he is both David's son and David's Lord. 
Right? You can see why this is a puzzle if you are a Jew living before the time of the Incarnation. The scri- what the scribes did not understand was that in this psalm, uh, David was extolling the Lord Jesus. David was contemplating the Holy Trinity and the Incarnation. The Father who is God and Lord said unto the Son who is God and David's Lord, sit thou at my right hand. I think we're actually going to sing this uh, perhaps later today. <clears throat> Christians know the meaning of Psalm 110, and yet it was concealed in this riddle form for the Jews, who also would sing it, but would be pondering, um, if they were pious, how can this be so? How can he be both David's son and David's Lord? Well, that is who Jesus is. This is the key to entering the kingdom, right? It is this belief and faith in Jesus as both son of David according to the flesh, fully man, and Son of God as a fully divine person that grants us entrance into the kingdom. You cannot deny that and then enter Christ's kingdom. So while the Shema is good and right and true, the Shema is not sufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven because to truly hear, O Israel, and know the one true God and one Lord, one must also accept that Jesus Christ is that one true God and Lord. This is also why Jesus says in John 17, 3, that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Jesus is the doorway into the kingdom. And so it is doubly true that this scribe was not far from the kingdom, for indeed, he was talking to the king himself. Who is the Christ? He is both David's son and David's Lord. The Christ can be none other than the one God of the Shema. Now, having posed this riddle so that the one who figures it out can enter the kingdom, Jesus now proceeds to do two things. First, he warns us of seeking worldly honor. And second, he shows us what keeping this greatest commandment looks like. So, uh, verses 38 to 40. And Jesus said unto them in his doctrine or in his teaching, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Um, There are at least two warnings here. There's two I, I want to draw to our attention. The first warning that Jesus gives is to beware of the people who use religion for selfish and self-serving purposes. So there are uh, scribes who are not far from the kingdom, like this one man who, who knows loving God and loving neighbor is more important than the sacrifices. And there are other scribes who just want to wear the long robe, <laughs> um, something that most of us could not uh, imagine. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, they love to go about in long clothing. They love being called rabbi in the marketplace. They love uh, the chief seats in the synagogues and uh, the best, room, uh, best seat at the table. So Jesus says you need to beware of those people. They do all of this religious stuff, but in the eyes of God, it is all just a show. It is all actually a pretense to devour widows' houses and gain status in society. So the church must be on guard against such hypocrisy, both in ourselves and in our leaders. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.17, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
He says in 1 Timothy 3.8 that officers in the church, elders and deacons, must not be greedy for filthy lucre. What is filthy lucre? It is ill-gotten gain. It's using your authority and influence to manipulate the widows in the church to steal their deceased husband's estate. Right? It's trying to get them to trust you, then you actually uh, take their inheritance or you have them sign over a power of attorney to you. Right? This is the kind of thing they were doing. They were devouring widows' houses. This is what the teachers of God's law were doing in Jerusalem. That's how bad and corrupt it was. And so Jesus is saying, uh, beware of those scribes. They are liars. They are frauds. Not everyone deserves your trust. The second warning is to beware in yourself of the temptation to worldly glory. So it's very easy to look at the scribes and kind of say, yeah, don't want to be like them. But all of us are susceptible to vanity, right? All of us naturally desire to look good in front of others, make a good impression, and we all want people to think and speak well of us. And while none of those things is uh, wrong or inherently evil, when that becomes our aim instead of honoring and pleasing God, we quickly become slaves to the world, to the world's opinion, and to our own self-image. This is why Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Right? If your reputation is so shiny and impeccable that everyone loves you, uh, you're a liar. <laughs> um, if you're going to follow God, you want to have a good reputation, but you also should have some enemies. But you want to make the right kind of enemies. So it's not a sin to care what people think of you. You should care what some people think of you. Uh, we should all aspire to have a good name and witness and reputation. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So having a good name is not a sin, but it is a sin if you have a good name with the world and a bad name in heaven. And this is what the whole Jewish establishment was guilty of. So how then shall we live? How then shall we keep the first and greatest commandment and enter into the kingdom? Well, so far uh, in Mark's gospel, we've had many negative examples, many cautionary tales of what not to do. Uh, and finally, we have Jesus giving us a positive example, which is the poor widow. So verses 41 to 44. And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and behold how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So within the temple complex. There was a place to give your offerings, and a tradition holds that there were uh, 13 of these uh, shofar chests. Uh, so a shofar is, is a trumpet, so it's this large kind of trumpet-shaped receiving container where people could throw in their contributions. And as the coins went in, you could hear the kind of clink, 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 and you could know, uh, was that a large offering or was that a small offering? Right? We can't tell with your checks, right, when they go in. We don't, we don't know. But this, this is how it would have been with uh, you know, metal money and this big uh, trumpet uh, that you, you put the money into. 
So Jesus is watching people bring their offerings. This is a public act in a public space. And remember, this is Jesus's house. This is his temple. So they're putting the money into his treasury. And many rich folks come through and they give large offerings. Clink, 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 clink. Very good. But then comes the poor widow and she has the equivalent of what we would call, uh, you know, pocket change. This is enough to get, you know, a candy bar or a package of top ramen. Two mites. And she puts both of them into the treasury. Clink, clink. And then Jesus says, this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. Because the rich gave from their abundance, but she gave all her living from her want. In other words, if ever it would have been reasonable for a woman to keep back at least one of her mites, uh, this was the occasion. And yet she so casts herself upon the mercy and generosity of God that she gives to God what probably was her daily bread. She exchanges the totality of her temporal goods, says all her living, which is not much, so that she might gain more of God. What is the price of heaven? What is the cost to enter Christ's kingdom? Well, Jesus is teaching us here that the price cannot be measured in dollars or coins or any worldly possession. It is measured, rather, according to the intention and contents of the heart. So not only are gifts measured into proportion to what God has given us, some percentage, some ratio, far more importantly, it is measured according to the love for God we have for him in our offering. Do we regard God as worth all our living? When we give to him our tithes and offerings, does it represent all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is it just 10% off the top to keep our conscience clean? Two people can give the same 10% of their income, but in God's eyes, one could actually be robbing him because they are giving it grudgingly. And the other could be offering their whole self, all that they have to him, in that tithe. Right? This is why God says, I love a cheerful giver. So love for God is what makes an offering acceptable in his sight, no matter the amount. And this is what makes the widow's offering of two, uh, two mites worth more than a king's ransom. And yet it is not just that the widow has given God all her living proportionately. It is that her gift represents her real spiritual state. She is both materially poor and poor in spirit. And thus the beatitude comes to pass, as Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Right? This woman is not far from the kingdom. She is inside of it because of her love for God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. In other words, you could hear this sermon and then go try to be like the poor widow and give God all of your goods. But if you lack charity, if you lack love, well, that profits you nothing. You haven't actually given to God what he wants from you. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And he doesn't want part of your heart. He doesn't want 10% of your heart. He wants the whole thing, all of it. 
This principle is crucial for us to understand because it means that all of our actions and attitudes all day long can either be a pleasing offering acceptable to the Lord or a foul smell in his nostrils. Right? Remember Cain and Abel, both offered sacrifices. Only one was accepted. So what are the two mites that God has given you? Or what is the great abundance that God has blessed you with? What is all your living, your livelihood, your vocation? Because no matter how much or how little you think you have, all of us have an equal opportunity to give all of ourselves in love to God through those things. Moreover, God himself is the greatest reward any of us could receive. And the more that we die to this world, the more that we forsake the, loving, uh, the loves of this world that are fleeting and give God all of our living, the more we make space in our soul to be filled by him. Remember what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham had just, uh, well, he's actually Abram at the time. Abram had just returned from rescue, rescuing his nephew Lot <clears throat> from Keter, Lomer, and three other kings. So they had taken Lot. Uh, Abraham hears about it. He takes his 318 men. They go to war. They defeat them. And then Melchizedek comes out, king of Salem, and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tithe. And yet, the king of Sodom wants to reward him, give him favors. Thank you for this uh, military defeat against my enemies. But Abraham will not receive any spoil, any reward from the king of Sodom. And what is his reward for denying that? It says in Genesis 15:1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. This poor widow was a true daughter of Abraham, a true woman of faith. She had God for her shield and her exceedingly great reward. Can you say that? So the more that you divest yourself of worldly desire, the more you love God with all, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, the richer you actually become. This is how Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that we are, quote, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. The person who has God as supreme in their affections is the one who possesses everything. And God is the gift that Jesus Christ comes to freely offer to the world. Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross for the life of the world. He loved his father he loved God, and he loved you, even unto death. And so what is two mites? What is all your possessions compared to so great a love? Become like Abraham. Become like the poor widow, and choose God as your shield and your exceedingly great reward. For that is a reward that can never be taken from you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.